Part Four, Section Three of the Trial of Callista Blake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Trial of Callista Blake by Edgar Pangborn. Part Four, Section Three. She saw it behind her eyelids, a small cloud, but deep, suddenly come, suddenly gone. The light strengthened. There was the rock, and a whiteness in the water. How could you know, Callista, that she was dead? She had, as usual, dared to move her cot nearer the wall with the barred door and the graffiti, so that if she crouched at that end of the cot, a triangle of shadow protected her from the glare of the naked bulb in the corridor. Matron Kowalski, on night duty, had a habit of turning that light off and on at chancy intervals after midnight. Regulations probably said it should burn steadily, but Kowalski was a zealous screw when not deep in a comic book, and doubtless hoped to catch her charges in bottomless wickedness by playing cute with a switch. Short-sighted, as well as thick-witted, Kowalski had apparently never caught on to Callista's crime of moving the cot. Callista generally tried to retrieve the sin before Matron Flannery came on in the morning, though whenever she forgot, Flannery just looked sad and grumbled, "'Now, dearie, we gotta put that back where it belongs, or it's my arse,' and sometimes even shoved it back herself with a heave of a massive thigh. Interesting, but maybe unprofitable, to contrast that kindness with the satisfaction Flannery had shown a week ago in disciplining a shouting and clawing wench who didn't want to go downstairs. Flannery had caught the girl from behind with an arm like a side of beef, in the pattern of rape, a stiff block of finger jabbing at nerve clusters here and there, leaving no mark. And if Callista Blake, the weird woman, cold Callie, the monkshood girl, were to create a disturbance, Flannery would be ready, would spread her flat feet and grunt in the same way, like a boar in rut, in the interest of law and order. I want more heat, I want more foodables, I want more heat, I want more foodables. The old woman down the corridor had been silent a while, the interval like the recession of a toothache. Hearing her resume, Callista dropped her face on her knees, listening more or less. Listening is an act of living. Listening, the human unit can at least say, I am not dead, I am here. I can prove it. The current of life is dancing in the delicate nerves, the brain recording, comparing, remembering. Understand, I am not dead. I want more heat, I want more foodables. She sounded plaintive at the moment, harping on a single string, a note in it much resembling enjoyment. The name was Watson. The nearly baritone voice brought the image of a body shriveled and small, crowding seventy, perhaps. I want more heat. I want more foodables. Watson must have been picked up Sunday as a D&D, &D, Callista supposed, raising hell somewhere in the chilly streets until somebody called the wagon. She couldn't be drunk now, two nights later, 
but the noise continued unchanged. She didn't belong here, of course. Yahoo! Kiss my cold aching ass, you dirty, dirty, dirty. All rise. All rise. I want more heat. I want more foodables. Sooner or later, the fumbling dust mop of the law would pick her up, shake her out into a different sort of institution. Or back to the streets and whatever dim hole of a room she lived in, with small possessions, old photographs, sewing basket, rocking chair. All rise. You, Watson, you shut up, the voice of Kowalski. Fuck you, Polak. I want more heat. I want more foodables. Listen here. You don't shut up. I'm coming in there again. Yeah. Weary, diminuendo, but not actually a sound of yielding. Silence followed as dust settles after an eddy of wind. Callista tried to review the course of the day, long in retrospect. Maud Welch all morning. Sergeant Shields, sober, exact, not unkind. Four bobby pins and a paper clip. Sergeant Peterson, a bleached mechanism for the production of not very good photographs, including one of the rock and the pond by daylight, not the light of a troubled and hazy moon. Trooper Curtis, plaster casts and fingerprints and so what? Sutherland R. Clip, who did everything. Trooper Carlos and Giorgio, the nice boy. And Dr. Devins. None of them except Maud Welch had remained very long on the stand. Cecil, who understood the nature of the conflict, had let most of them pass by with little or no questioning. Callista found she was remembering too mechanically. Names and faces would not coalesce to any rationally useful larger pattern. Yet, at some point, she thought it was during the testimony of Cousin Maud, something had been done or said that had lessened the opacity of the blank, like a hint of dawn or false dawn beyond a dirty window. Or was it anything done or said? Cousin Maud of the Plum Jam understood nothing of the interview with Anne at Covent Street, a happening far outside the cage where the life of Cousin Maud fluttered and squeaked. Perhaps this was the way of it. During the examination of Cousin Maud, the blank had thinned temporarily, of itself. A coincidence in time, maybe nothing to do with any word spoken probably during the cross-examination, when Cecil was questioning Maud about the Saturday night, the bedroom scene. A sorry hamlet I made. Fuck your stinking jail, too. We got rights, Polak. You ain't saving the taxpayers nothing. We all die of pneumonia. They gotta pay for a box. Listen, I've been flying out of better jails before you was old enough to shove a finger up it. I want more heat. I want... Callista winced at the smack of Kowalski's feet passing her cell. She heard the clash of keys, clang of the iron door, high anticipatory whimpering, still that note of enjoyment, 
broken off by the crack of a flat hand against flesh, repeated and repeated, Callista's body clenching in misery at each repetition of the sound, her scream of protest choked into silence by a bitten lip. They can't. Stop it. But it had happened the same way last night. Would happen again and again, maybe always, here and there in the world, throughout the extent of foreseeable time. How long is that? Callista's fingernails were hurting her legs. Her mind held firm somewhere, listening. Watson wasn't yelling much. She hadn't last night either, only a small rhythmic outcry. Mouse in a trap. You gonna quiet down now? Uh-huh. I'm sorry, Kowalski. Mrs. Kowalski. I'm sorry, Mrs. Kowalski. Give me a butt. This ain't no charity ward. Anger spent, Kowalski probably just wanted to get back to her comic book. Nor you ain't no psycho. You're putting on to get attention. Beat the rap for what you done with your busted bottle. All the jerks on Mullen Street, you had to stick it into plain-clothes cop. That was crazy, but now you're crazy like a fox. You know that thing punctured his intestine? Still in hospital. And that ain't good news for you, crazy like a fox. Watson giggled. Couldn't help it. He wasn't nothing head to foot, only one big turd. Give me a butt. Just one, huh, please? God give me patience. That noise of Kowalski's was mechanical, a kind of breathing, blurred by the iron clang. Callista was standing by her own cell door. Matron! Kowalski's square bulk swung about, her flat face slipping into shadow as her head turned from the light. You, huh? Will you take her a pack of mine? I don't use em much. Got plenty, huh? Yes. Callista held the pack through the bars. Kowalski made no move to take it. I'd like her to have it. You'd like? You feel pretty big, don't you, Miss Blake? You feel real big with them cigarettes. I thought we was just dirt. Now everything's okay. You can bend low and give an old woman a pack of your butts. She held her voice down. Watson was mumbling and crooning to herself perhaps not listening. Maybe it wouldn't occur to you, Miss Blake, but that old trot's got pride. She ain't licking up no atheist prisoner dirty leavings. Me neither. Miss Blake, I wouldn't touch you, not by a ten-foot pole. Callista saw thumb and forefinger of the woman's hand pinched in a circle at the shelf of her breasts. Her soft tones had lost distinctness, slipping back into the vaguer argo of a South Winchester childhood. "'Ain't coming in here, not lest sheriff or somebody gives me direct order. You can drop dead. You ain't human. You're a stinking thing. You can hang yourself. I won't go in. Leave you for Flannery to find by the morning.' 
Callista put the cigarette away and sat on her cot, gazing at interlaced fingers, trying, as if the time allowed were not short but the need urgent, to grasp the nature of hatred, especially in this new guise. Kowalski had not displayed it before, had seemed only an indifferent mechanism busy with her job. It occurred to Callista that she herself must have been shamefully unobservant. Did others unsuspectedly ache with this kind of loathing for her? T.J. Hunter? Cousin Maud? Jim? Why? I guess you don't talk. You can't be bothered. No, Mrs. Kowalski, I'd rather not talk. Oh, you'd rather not. Much too good to talk to a dumb Polak. Let me tell you something, Miss Blake. What they do after they pull the switch in that little room, what they do, they take out the heart, doing the autopsy, understand? No matter you got lots of money, are going to be buried fancy somewheres, they take out the heart. They got a reason. All right, you don't talk. Kowalski stood there a while longer, exercising great courage, perhaps, or having faith in the cold iron of the bars. Then Callista sensed that the woman had gone away. I will think about the night of Saturday, the 15th of August. Cousin Maud must have been telling the truth about that episode on the front porch. Callista could not remember seeing or hearing Anne then, but Cousin Maud would not have lied. How unmistakably the bedroom was Mother's. Nothing there of Herb, who slept at the far end of the upstairs hall in a room Mother indulgently called his den as one might refer to a cat's favorite basket. Well, the entire house merely tolerated Herb Chalmers, who, after all, did nothing except own it, pay taxes and upkeep, and exist there. Poor Herb! If only he wasn't so inclined to agree with that estimate himself. By contrast, the spook of the professor, the great Malachi Chalmers, so respectably dead, was quite at home. Cousin Maud liked to behave as though all major directives were announced jointly by the professor and Victoria. The room smelled of Victoria, a scent resembling dilute vinegar now and then penetrating the ordinary flavor of sachet and face powder. That night, without asking, Callista knew her mother had been sitting for some time at the antique secretary desk dealing with correspondence of the Thursday Society of Shanesville. And Victoria, after her absent-minded greeting, would go on sitting there preoccupied, long enough to make the point. "'I'm sorry. I didn't know you planned to come out tonight, dear.' "'No plan. Impulse. I wanted to talk to you, mother.' "'Oh, something terribly important?' Well, dear, just make yourself comfortable till I'm through here, and we'll have a nice little visit. Callista stood near the desk, where Victoria must at least be aware of her. I wish you would sit down, Callista. It is a little trying to be stared at when one is attempting to concentrate. Sorry, but I wasn't staring at you, mother. 
that was true her mind too swiftly to be caught in the act had generated an image perhaps well worth staring at a thing approximately sixty days old for it must have been conceived in the deep middle days of june possessing a bent head larger than the blob of body stubs with a blind intent to become legs and arms a thing charged with the strain and pressure of life and yet finger and thumb if they could reach it might pinch it out of existence like a soft bug mrs chalmers's grandchild callista's hand driven by involuntary thought dropped to rest at the level of her womb where the thing sheltered inaccessible whether a motion of hostility or protectiveness or both impossible to say and mother would never notice i was staring at something that happened a long time ago you may not remember it i wanted to find out if you did resignedly victoria capped her pen and laid it on the unfinished letter took off her amber-rimmed reading glasses and retired them deliberately to their case callista i must say that for anyone so young this habit of mulling over past events is not healthy not the way to become adjusted to reality i know mother i'm not in tune with the times am i if you realize it i dare say that's a step in advance what said callista is the virtue of being in tune with the times when the times are corrupt callista i am rather tired must we have one of your your rather naive philosophical discussions all part of the process of adjustment i dare say but frankly i am not up to it the big questions callista thought always break the line and swim away too big and a weak line who wants the great dangerous things anyhow not mrs chalmers nor the thursday society mother do you happen to remember the time i spilled that nitric acid happen to remember callista that passes belief large gray upturned eyes filled with tears i am not a monster am i i'm sorry i spoke clumsily i meant do you remember the details i was going on five it's difficult what details naturally i remember them all perfectly what do you want to know the sharpness was excusable yet callista wondered whether she truly regretted the cruelty of that blurted question hamlet act three scene four she had reread the play in the afternoon a catalytic action although it had been a seemingly random choice a turning to shakespeare for relief illumination distraction and something more in a time of trouble as another might have turned to music or physical exertion or the warmth of a friend her thought still rang with it reverberated and she understood now that the choice had not been random at all let me be cruel not unnatural i will speak daggers to her but use none your father was drunk callista 
otherwise i don't suppose even he could have been so heedless as to leave that bottle where a child could knock it over is that what you wanted to know no that's only what you've told me before drunk of course it keeps coming back to me that his face was burning what his face was burning it was the malaria wasn't it you've told me yourself he brought that home from new guinea latent but never cured oh he had that yes a mild form mother malaria is not mild if it gives you recurrent fevers and collapse i've read up on it i had to trying to understand you're very full of book knowledge certainly i've found more truth in books than in people a mild form why two years later he died of it didn't he now my dear your father died and i think you know this perfectly well of pneumonia the doctor informed me that the malaria was at most a, a complicating factor the pneumonia was induced by exposure and that in turn was caused by his passing out as they call it on a january night in a drunken stupor on his way home from a bar a drunken stupor or a blinding fever i was seven i remember hearing you answer the telephone the hospital i suppose it was where they'd taken him i'd been put to bed long before but wasn't sleeping you were having drinks or something with cousin trent after aunt cora and uncle tom winwood left i even remember hearing aunt cora say good night and then your voice going on a long time to cousin trent i don't suppose i heard many of the words but i knew the tone the one you always used when you were explaining father's shortcomings callista wait i must tell you what i remember but not about this i mean the earlier time two years earlier let me tell you what i remember of that and then i'll go i remember running into the studio dragging my red fire engine father was on the couch he'd been working the big table was littered with his things he sat up and smiled and held out his arms to me i climbed into his lap when he kissed me his face was burning his hands shaking i know he talked to me but the words won't come back except draw me a big horse and a little horse then i remember lying belly down on the floor working with crayons the horses i suppose and he went out of the room for quinine probably he had an allergic reaction to adabren in the army didn't he something like that callista i can't see it was morning mother sunlight in that east window shining a slant across the things on his work table from what i've learned what i can remember and piece together i don't believe my father would have been drunk in the morning callista is this your time of the month no god damn it really 
Callista, I must ask you to control yourself. I was never colder. I think I must have a fuller memory than most. It comes back, how serious I was about the drawing, at going on five. Precocious. I still possess some talent that way. Callista, as you know, you have a quite considerable talent that way, if you would learn to discipline it, and, well, and outgrow your taste for the unpleasantly morbid and erotic subjects that seem to attract you so much. I have never understood, in fact, why you chose to be so childishly disagreeable a year ago when I ventured to show some of your, your less controversial drawings to the Thursday Society. Very well, I should have asked your consent, being merely your mother. Now, Mrs. Wilberforce, who is, after all, an art teacher of somewhat wider experience than yours, to say nothing of having written and illustrated a number of altogether charming children's books, Mrs. Wilberforce felt that one or two of those drawings showed distinct promise. Distinct promise! yes mrs w's a nice lady oh mother so much comes back spring of nineteen forty five he was invalided home a whole year before then wasn't he nineteen forty four didn't i have him a whole year before my face was burned why are you crying wasn't it nineteen forty four nineteen forty four yes he came home that year and to think she even offered to let you try some illustrations for one of her own books was willing to instruct you help you in every possible way who oh wilberforce yes she's nice what a pity the books are garbage why are you crying cousin trent that little man trent why i never callista you are hysterical i was never colder mother you have my father much offended what what are you saying i'm not thinking of cousin trent that doesn't matter it couldn't matter if you sneaked into the sheets with him a hundred times callista it doesn't matter i said the real infidelity was in the way you treated my father day to day the nagging belittlement the wearing down the needles of disparagement mental castration but i don't think you ever managed that i think he stayed a man i was seven when he died you think i couldn't feel what you were doing to him and can't remember it i do even more i think of how you've gone on since then trying to destroy him for me why in your view nothing he ever did was good or wise or even honorable isn't that why you cut me off from aunt cora winwood because she knew better mother he was one of the gentle ones a fault if you like is that what you held against him that he couldn't black your eye when you needed it? Mother, I have three paintings he did to please himself, escape from commercial work. Just three. He must have done a great deal that was never sold. 
there must have been sketches unfinished things portfolios put aside i never asked you this before afraid of the answer i think what became of that work i simply will not endure any more of this what became of my father's work oh if you mean well when we moved here from new york and there was so much i was right then you threw it away if you will control yourself and listen reasonably yes your father did leave certain drawings and paintings which were very obviously done to please himself as you put it they were i am sorry callista they were vile no one could call me a prude but there are certain limits now it's out callista i must ask they were all destroyed all his visions everything beyond the level of say the thursday society destroyed everything you didn't save one charcoal sketch one line drawing one bit of a doodle on scratch paper if you did i'll stay to beg you for it or steal it if i can i want nothing else from you ever but for one scrap of my father's work i'd go on my knees callista you are out of your mind mother for love of grace lay not that flattering unction to your soul that not your trespass but my madness speaks oh this morbid dramatizing this neurotic quoting hamlet at me as if i are you laughing not very much i was thinking how neither poor herb nor cousin trent fits the picture very well it doesn't matter there's more than one way to pour poison in the ear of a king you did it with words millions of little nibbling words all the years he lived with you and and for a final dirty joke of the fates begot me but i think he knew i loved him as much as a child's capable of loving maybe it gave him something after all he couldn't see ahead and i was thinking i must write to aunt cora i think she'd remember the crazy brat who adored her and then couldn't come to see her any more because tom winwood dr rinks she might have some of his work and might send me to friends of his people you never knew i was thinking mother how differently you'd feel if his work could be recognized now that he's been safely dead for twelve years what a change then you'd be what his inspiration callista don't stop it do you have to break my heart completely what have i done such an act oh poor mother nothing nothing at all maybe that's the worst of it you've done nothing just lived inside the shell of your own vanity as everyone does i suppose i'm sorry mother it's all right i'm going and i won't come back my own vanity tricked me into saying too much but you'll forget and go on in your own way i haven't changed anything 
assume a virtue if you have it not remember forgive me this my virtue for in the fatness of these pursy times you don't have one little scrap a three-line scrawl on the back of an envelope callista's mother weeping with her head on her arms did not answer that to callista standing in the doorway not yet able to turn and go it seemed as though all hatred and resentment had drained away suddenly from within her including the old dark aching hatred for herself which until then had seldom released her except at certain times in the warm presence of edith nolan she would have liked to cross the room try for some physical contact implying comfort and forgiveness with that stranger over there who still made strangled sounds of self-pity and other kinds of pain all of them real but having no confidence in her skill at such gestures no illusion that a relation thus broken could ever be repaired and fearing to lose the new-found inner quiet callista only said good night mother downstairs then pausing on the landing her hand tightening on the rail as she waited on the passing of a curious nausea too early for the sickness of pregnancy wasn't it nothing else wrong and the nausea did pass my pulse as yours doth temperately keep time she wondered standing there still faintly sick how the self of a week before could possibly have knelt in that wild garden pulled up those innocently wicked plants broken off the roots to be dropped in her handbag and thought this way would solve everything and hardly hurt at all yet the self of a week before had done that the self of a few hours past had glanced at the brandy bottle death dissolved and waiting and had thought have it out with mother there could be some of his work maybe buried in the attic where my searching never uncovered it and then probably the self pausing on the landing hand letting go the rail and moving again softly shelteringly over the secret life in the womb had thought practically and sensibly throw away that stunk-up mess as soon as you get home and the self of twenty minutes later arriving at the apartment with a burden of abnormal fatigue and drowsiness had forgotten is there any true forgetting this side of death forgotten all about bottle and canister everything except bed the self on the landing thought it's all right funny thing look it's all right i'm going to bear you i'm going to take care of you i can do that i will had wondered incidentally if the small bra wasn't already a bit tight the girl on the landing ran a finger lightly along the column of her neck wasn't there slightly more fullness softness should go to a dentist too and oh lots of little chores never mind anyhow funny thing never mind the details it's going to be all right for you and me the self seated on the cot where kowalski had left her stood up uncertainly with a sense of listening 
although she knew Kowalski was gone, Watson was keeping quiet. The night also was in a deep hush with no longer that occasional whine of wind beyond the barred glass. No one had spoken. Unless I did. She glanced at the window, uneasy as though the blank of winter night beyond it had paled, and might show again some light or color if she stared patiently enough. No, not that window, not that blank, and no true sound of speech. She stood with eyes closed and hands pressed over her ears, waiting, and hearing at least the dull noise, muffled as it ought to be on the other side of a closed door, of a bottle, heavy glass, drawn across resonant wood from the back of a shelf, faint pop of a cork and clink of glass and tap of high heels. "'Callie, come on now. I poured a little drink for you.' And that fool lying frozen on the bed down there. Why, how long had that fool held herself frozen, knowing everything? How long before that fool was telling herself, "'I didn't really hear her. I couldn't make out what she said.' How long? Whining maybe before the blank shut down complete. It wasn't anything I did. I wasn't there. I couldn't move. Anyway, how could I know she'd drink it herself? Saying later, oh, the blank, in righteous innocence to Mr. Lamson. I don't know. I can't remember. Screaming in the secret heart, where not even Cecil could hear it and understand, I don't want to know. I don't want to remember. Eyes open, hands fallen, she noticed by the cot the handful of trifling possessions allowed her. She fumbled through it, unsure what she sought, until her fingers held the lipstick pencil. To the wall, then, dizzy and obliged to lean against the cool plaster while her hand labored but the effort was interesting she could feel wryly justifiably certain that no hand had ever written these words on this wall ever before she stood back dizziness gone and saw how the red letters in the dim light took on a magnificence a glory like tranquillity I am guilty. End of part four, section three. Recording by Roger Moline.